I'm always nervous to start this because you treat me like I'm Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. I literally did that once. And since then, you have just become overly paranoid. Okay, should we just move on? Okay. Hello. Hello, Philip. Mary Poppins. <laughs> okay, we'll do that again. Hello, Philip. Hello, Rachel. How are you? I'm good. You? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. What's news? Um, I've been getting into trouble on TikTok. I mean, I think TikTok is a source of trouble for all kinds of reasons, but what trouble have you been getting into? Well, it does seem to be that with TikTok, I either post things that are definitely jokes and people either get it or they don't, or I post things that are subtly jokes and people usually just don't get it. And I posted a video on Sunday commenting on the fact that lots of people are very upset because there's a new drama on Channel 5, which I've not seen, but it's called Anne Boleyn. And it stars an actress called Jodie Turner-Smith in the title role. And people are very angry because she's black. Is this like when Jodie Whittaker was cast as the Doctor in Doctor Who? And suddenly people were up in arms because there was a woman playing what is essentially a two-hearted alien from Gallifrey. Yes, very much like that. And also very similar to the people who are very angry anytime anyone suggests that Idris Elba should be playing the next James Bond. However much people dress it up, it's definitely their misogyny about Jodie Whittaker or their racism about Idris Elba or Jodie Turner-Smith that is getting in the way and they need to mask that by pretending it's all about history. We've rewritten history apparently, that's what's happening with this TV show. So I posted a video on TikTok that says, to those of you who say Jodie Turner-Smith is the wrong colour to play Anne Boleyn, and then I showed about four photos of movie depictions of Jesus, all with white actors playing the role. I may have slipped in Brian from the life of Brian at the end there, just for <laughs> I don't know how he got in there. He's uh, a very <laughs> naughty boy. But it's really angered people on TikTok who are livid with the idea that historical information is being changed by this drama. I say people, I mean racists. Like they genuinely think people are going to watch this and think, oh my goodness. Anne Boleyn was black. Everything I learned for history GCSE was wrong. And they're really angry because King Henry VIII was a well-known racist, was he? Is that what we remember him for? <laughs> Not divorcing or murdering his wives? Yeah, it's like beheaded, beheaded, deceased, racist, racist, racist. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're very happy for Henry VIII and other film and TV versions to be played by people like Damien Lewis or Jonathan Rhys Myers, who look nothing like him, but it's okay because they're the same colour. I commented at one point that maybe she got the role not for box ticking because she was the best actress that auditioned for the job and someone said you can't know that you've got no proof I was like well the proof might be that she got the job <laughs> somebody said we know what Anne Boleyn looked like we have photographic evidence <laughs> um, to which I recorded a reply video you've got photos of Anne Boleyn Wow. That is the logic you're dealing with when you argue on TikTok. But every time I engage with their comments, it helps my numbers and boost the views. So it's worth engaging for that. But I've not seen my family in four days. <laughs> Well, given that you probably need to get straight back to TikTok to deal with the trolls, <laughs> we should probably get on with the show. I will just put a little warning out that there is a very gory operation story that comes up yeah. about two thirds of the way in. But also it is hilarious. It was one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever heard and certainly one of the most unusual things I've ever heard discussed on a podcast, unless it was one about scientific discoveries or maybe one of those true crime shows. But <laughs> enjoy, enjoy. We had a good laugh and I hope you you will too. On with the show. This episode of Duke Talking to Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Philip Simon. And I'm Rachel Krieger. We are two Jewish comedians. 
I'm Orthodox, so I absolutely love the Ten Commandments. And I'm Reform, so I thought it was okay, but Charlton Heston overacted the whole thing. This show is the audio equivalent of the Da Vinci Code. It's pacey, steeped in traditional symbolism, and one of us could definitely be played by Tom Hanks. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up, and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they enjoying the sun, or, oh yes, hot. Too hot. I'm schwitzing. Seriously, I've seen heat, but this Welcome is Welcome to hot. Jude Talking to Me. Let's introduce our guests. First up is one of Australia's favourite stand-up comedians. It's Australian comedian Rachel Berger. Hello. Lovely to be here. Excellent. So excited. <laughs> Regular <laughs> listeners to our podcast know that we always like to find out how our guests self-define as Jews. So you already know that I'm Orthodox and Philip's Reform, but Rachel, what kind of a Jew are you? I think the best way to describe, look, I, I'm not Orthodox, I'm not Reform. I guess like a spiritual Jew. I went to a Jewish school, so I did biblical studies. I know a lot about Jewish history because I think it's important that you know your own history. But I don't practice, you know, I don't govern. Although, you know, there are certain things that I do regularly. For some reason, I say the Moderni every morning, which is kind of nuts, but I do. Moderni as in the morning prayer. Right. I, I think the best way to describe it is S.J. Perelman wrote for The New Yorker. He's an incredible satirist. And he wrote all the Marx Brothers scripts. So all those clever word plays and everything were S.J. Perelman. I'm a great fan of his because he was a genius writer. And he was Jewish, but he was a very assimilated Jew. He was from New York and he went to Los Angeles to write for Hollywood. So he always tried to make out like he wasn't like the New York Jew that he was. There was he himself and another Jewish writer writing at MGM Studios. The other guy was Orthodox and um, had a round back. He actually was a hunchback. It was a physical disability. One day they're walking down a street somewhere in Los Angeles and they come across one of those Jewish stores that sells all the Jewish paraphernalia, the candlesticks and the Haggadah and everything else. And Perelman is there with his very expensive cashmere coating and looking very glamorous and being very assimilated. And so they're walking down the street and Perelman stops in this window to see all these Jewish artifacts. And he smiles at the other guy with the hunch and he says, you know, I used to be a Jew. And the hunchback looks at him and says, and I used to be a hunchback. <laughs> and I think that's how Jewish I am. Whether I said it or not, people would go, you're Jewish. It oozes out of me in a good way. That's a really interesting point. It made me think of when I first started working in theatre as a writer and director but specialising in comedy. My material that I worked on and the material that I wrote wasn't Jewish at all. But every reviewer commented on how Jewish it was. And I realised that it kind of, I was going to say it bleeds out of you. And I don't mean that in a in the sort of a grim way. But I think for some people, it's just the, an essence that comes into everything they do. I think if I sang a Christmas carol, it would still sound like a Jewish melody. And, you know, the interesting thing is that when I've met Jews in different parts of the world, like Ethiopian Jews, it's like the same cultural things go through wherever they're from. You see the same thing. So that's the kind of Jew I am. I guess it's kind of in me and of me and comes out in most things that I do, whether I want to or not. You know. <laughs> so bearing that in mind, Rachel, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? <laughs> I, there's very few Jews in Tasmania. You know, the two oldest synagogues in Australia are in Tasmania. The two oldest, the oldest and the second oldest. Um, 
wow. because they were Jews that came with the convicts. God knows what they were brought over for, embezzling a chicken or something. But there were Jews <laughs> And one of them, when he got out, made a whole lot of money and built the first synagogue in Hobart. So these are like really old synagogues. They're tiny. Anyway, so through there I happened to meet some other Jews. There's not many of us. So this Seder I got invited. I wasn't going to do anything because I'm in the middle of the bush and because of COVID I couldn't back, go back to Melbourne where my friends were. So I got invited to the Seder. So there's like six of us. One is a doctor, two are psychiatrists, right? So that's already Jewish. But then when we get to the part where the four questions are, you know, the wise one, the, the one that doesn't know how to ask and the simple son and that, one of the psychiatrists says, okay, everybody stop. I think that we should discuss the psychopathology of, you know, the wise child. The, the, <laughs> it's about the exodus. For What are we talking about? The psycho? No, they started discussing the pathology of the wise one, the one who was afraid to ask and the simple one. I thought that's one of the most Jewish things I've ever seen in my life. They didn't even want to talk about the food, which is what usually happens. They wanted to pathologise the four questions. That's, that's hilarious. I mean, the only relevant question at any Seder, I think, is when do we eat? Uh, absolutely, that's right. But, you know, these were like, they were vegan and there was like, anyway, it wasn't like a Seder. Nobody felt sick afterwards. The portions were tiny. The food was not Jewish. Everything else was. You know, when people have like their secret random skill, my one is that I know when the food comes in the Seder in about 27 different kinds oh, of agada. Yeah, seriously. Like the children's one the, with the pulling tabs, page 26. My one is page 182. I'm telling you, that's my magical skill. But that's also partly because those are the pages that are utterly stained with food. That's right. From the point that you've had the matzah, the haroset, and that's all, well, the crumbs have just been folded into the pages. That's how you know. That's right. Or the fingerprints of people that are dying to eat and they're sweaty and they're having an anxiety attack. Our next guest is a stand-up comedian, improviser, writer and artist. It's Mark Mayer. Hello. Yay. You are very welcome. And we'd love to know what type of Jew are you? Well, I suppose if I'm asked the question, I'm doing stand-up shows, I refer to myself as a sit-on-the-fence Jew. A sort of, <laughs> you know, it's the equivalent of you, if you remember the pick-and-mix counters at, at Woolworths. So I take a bit of everything, you know, a couple of days off work due to the <laughs> holidays. Yeah. Or a meal with some, you know, relatives. I don't really like but they put on a good spread fantastic going to shul every Shabbos I've got enough to be getting on with here thanks uh, <laughs> me too so it's yes pick and choose pick and choose <laughs> I like the traditions we still do Friday night dinner we still have, have a holler every Friday but I'm not certainly not an observant Jew but having said that I grew up well we went to orthodox shul but um, we didn't practice but I like the traditional side of it which Jew doesn't like traditional side of things but that for me is you know the defining factor I suppose I think for so many people across a very broad church of Judaism if you know what I mean Friday night dinner is the last thing to go when people are making their way away from observance because I mean what's not to love everything about it is gorgeous being with your family I mean, unless you don't like your family being with the family amazing food it's all very jovial I can see why people cling on to that one I would as well but everyone has different favorite traditions so for some people, it's Friday night dinner. Others, it's maybe the food that they eat at certain festivals. I'll tell you one I can imagine that you don't get. Oh, I love a tradition of not eating on Yom Kippur. <laughs> Wish they extended a bit further. <laughs> there are people that would like the tradition of breaking the fast after Yom Kippur. Yes. The food they have is so cultural, 
It's not just snacking to get over not eating for 25 hours. I know with my cousins in Israel, when they break the fast, there's a smorgasbord. They've got English, Israeli, Iraqi. They've, they've got so many cultures coming together for that meal, not even in the room, just the food. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that Rachel also touched upon, that commonality, that understated, un- unsaid connection that you have. And I've done, you know, gigs all over the place. And I've been in South Africa and I've also done shows in Australia and have been invited for a meal, maybe Friday night dinner or whatever, still finding those same, the same conversations, the same manners, the same quirks and traits. It's it's a very comforting, you know, warming, connecting thing, I think, that is what I kind of cling on to and would hope to never lose. Mark, you went to America and did Kung Pao comedy shows, didn't you? Which is a very famous yeah. Jewish comedy night in a non-kosher Chinese restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what was that like? Oh, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. And exactly that thing I'm talking about, the connections and the, the topics and the subject matter, it was, it was so enjoyable to talk about stuff that I wondered, is it just a British trait or is akin to all Jews and obviously some references I had to drop but it was sort of was it f- I think three or four nights we did and it was delightful I mean things like a Jewish person hearing an item of news that's negative or involves some sort of financial irregularity that we you know when you hear that item of news you hear it in slow motion because you don't want the person responsible to be Jewish and you so please don't let them <laughs> please don't let them which they immediately got and why shouldn't they get that but it's something I've talked about in London yet it's a universal Jewish paranoia trait the man responsible Steve Wilson whew they go for that and I suppose it's like going to the side of the world and introducing some of the chicken soup and them going oh yeah well I'm, I know all about that I've already had that so very enjoyable fantastic and Mark what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently um, well in terms of Jewish paranoia <laughs> I, I run a I run a monthly show so obviously we're just back after lockdown and uh, it was on Sunday and one of the acts turned up and I was frazzled and fraud because the PA system wasn't working and being Jewish I can barely turn on a, a switch let alone organise a whole sound and light system so the whole PA system was down the guy that was supposed to be helping me hadn't got a clue didn't know what he was doing and then one of the acts turned up late a guy called Marcus Birdman and he came in uh, I said a little bit late it's fine he said yes I'm sorry he said I blame the Jews and I thought after what? everything that's going on does he think it's funny why would he find that amusing to make a comment like I blame the Jews and it was only with the, about to launch into an attack or else he said I blame the tubes I know Marcus a little bit and I did think it seems quite out of character. That's yeah. probably the most Jewishy thing that's happened. And then of course he went on stage and repeated the whole story, which um, yeah. and then, <laughs> funny enough, I don't talk about my Jewishness to a non-Jewish audience, but I'll do Jewish shows and obviously that's all part and parcel of it. Does everyone know that I'm Jewish? What, what? <laughs> we do now. These are tough times that we are living in. So we always like to check in with our guests and ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? So Rachel, what's going on with you at the moment? I'm sick of wearing a mask. In Australia, it hasn't been so bad, but all of a sudden our ears have become like handbags. I've got the mask, I've got the headphones, I've got everything on my ear. Everything is, I'm schlepping with my ears and it's really annoying me because they're beginning to hurt. Plus it's so annoying. I mean, you guys have had it much worse than we've had it here. And particularly in Tasmania, it's hardly been at all. But yeah, it's annoying me. The ears, everything is on my ears I think we could all empathise with that I genuinely thought Rachel for a moment there you're going to say yeah I hear you I was about to <laughs> I, I was about to congratulate you on an excellent pun and then you changed direction and went I agree <laughs> 
Let's re-record it. I hear you. Oh, nice one. Thanks. That's seamless. That's a really interesting way of putting it, though. We do have things dangling from our ears. And I find I don't have ear pods that are wireless. So I find if you've put your headphones in after you've attached the mask, if you then take the mask off, everything right. gets caught up. And... Right. and for me, I've got a headscarf on top of that, which has yeah. pros and cons. Con, obviously, is another thing rubbing on your ear. But pro, all the headphones and the mask elastic make my ears really stick out. But the headscarf pops them back into place. Beautiful. Silver lining. <laughs> well, that is definitely something I think we should look at from now on a very different light is how much strain it puts on people's ears. That that would be the after effects of COVID. People will end up with, you know, just having really big ears because everything's on the ears. Everything. They just bec- have become like handbags. Apparently, I don't know, that was the origin of the Indian and African elephants. The African elephants suffered a bout of COVID and had everything on their ears. <laughs> Ironically, never hit India, which is now a sort of... You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know when people have those earrings which are sort of holes in their earlobes that get bigger and bigger at this point in time those are kind of quite useful you could put like a are they called carabiner thing in it you could put your shopping you could put your keys in there your car keys everything i know but i don't get them they just get bigger and bigger in my life my nose just gets bigger and bigger you know as you get older your nose gets bigger and eventually my nose will look like a gallbladder in the middle of my face i reckon i hear you i think it's weird when somebody says particularly to a jewish woman you don't look jewish how they take it as a compliment have you ever noticed that that is the theme of one of my whole edinburgh shows about not looking jewish and uh, what that has done in my life for me. I've had a comedian come on stage after I was comparing and talking about being Jewish and the first thing he said was, I don't know why he mentioned being Jewish, he doesn't look Jewish and it was such an odd thing, that's how he was going to start his set. Yeah, people often say Gwyneth Paltrow is Jewish and they go, how come she looks like that? She doesn't look Jewish. Like, to look Jewish is a particular, you know, it's not a good thing if they're insinuating, which I think it is. I think Jewish women are beautiful. So it's the same way when people say to me, you don't look Jewish. I always have to fight to say, what did you expect I would look like? Or, I mean, and I look Jewish. So if somebody says, I don't look Jewish, I just don't be ridiculous. Mark, what's the matter, Bubbler? It's actually, well, I developed a little, you can't see this, thank goodness. It's actually not so bad now. I had, I got a rash from nowhere. Obviously, I had to go to the expert dermatologist, the brother of the dermatologist's brother, his brother, <laughs> second opinion of the uncle. And I had five senior dermatologists around me. We looked at the x-rays and the scans. We've never seen anything like this before. So, I mean, I, I genuinely, I was upset and also Part of me was thinking, I wonder if it will be named after me. Which, is <laughs> but all joking apart, it's like an annoying sort of little sort of scalpy rash thing. Scalpy, I mean skinny, kind of horrible. It's not on my scalp; it's on my palms. But the point is that my my upset is my children are treating me like a leper. I've got a 16-year-old, well, he barely knows who I am anyway, but the, the other two, <laughs> the 13-year-old and the 9-year-old, literally, oh, I'm not going to eat that. Dad touched it. Oh. I'll say to Sasha, come and give me a cuddle. No, no. Oh, oh. Uh, don't get me started on my wife. Um, <laughs> uh, but we're over the hurdle of it sort of really upsetting me. It just mildly bothers me now. That's, that's my little furibble. It's slowly go, going with various creams and ointments. But literally, you know, if I, if I pass an apple to my youngest, Ella, she, she'll sort of look at it and then just rub it furiously with several towels and disinfectants. Wow. And, 
you know, you can't get annoyed about it because I kind of understand it. And if I was role reversal, my dad doing that, I probably would go, uh, uh, keep him away. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed that you want it named after you. I appreciate it's a very Jewish thing to think we're something is so terrible, it could be named after us, but it wouldn't work in your case because clearly someone come back from the doctor with a diagnosis of, I've got a mark on my hand. <laughs> yeah, but what is it? Oh, it's a mark. Yeah, I, I get that. But what is it? Oh, it's just a mark on my hand. It's like a two runny sketch. Yes. It is like a two runny sketch. So do they know what it is? Do they know what's causing no. it? No. This is such a Jewish conversation. And what creams have they prescribed, Mark? Actually, I should have been a doctor. But with herbal stuff, have you changed anything that you're eating recently? No, I was asked all this. I was asked all, including uh, the doctor just went, Sexual partners? Like, I wasn't sure who was offering me or... How many? That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. It could be psychosomatic. Are you actually, you know, grasping for something that you don't have? Sexual partners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cruel. Exactly. So I'm a leper. Oh, Come to Tasmania. All the lepers are here. It's okay. I think I saw that on a billboard. <laughs> I'm a full-on Jewish mother, so the first thing I think whenever I see anyone is, have you eaten yet? We were talking earlier about the food we break Yom Kippur fast with, but also are there any other memories that you have that are connected to Jewish food? Mark, how about you? Well, my dad, he's German, so brings a lot of that sort of German cooking, German tradition, or sort of Hungarian food, things like goulash when we were growing up, but also sort of weird, peculiar stuff like um, calves foot jelly, which is just... Mm. It's not mm, it's more mm. No, no, my mother used to make it. I mean, you shouldn't put those three words together, should you? Uh, cow's bladder ice cream. <laughs> Any food other than jelly that wobbles, that isn't entirely jelly-based, is not right. So that, for me, brings back sort of strong memories of, you know, growing up and Jewish food that I would never sort of touch or be involved with. Um, I think uh, Heston Blumenthal makes cow's bladder wow. ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> cow's jelly's come up a few times on the show, always with the same level of disgust. So it must be a generational thing. It's like my grandma made it and they used to give it to people if they weren't well. It was like a really big deal for that generation. If it's something that's so hated, why would it be given to people to make them feel better? Is it? Has it got medicinal? Because it's actually high protein. It's like, you know, broth. Mm. The fashion now is people are all eating broth and beef broth and broth or whatever broth. I was just going to make a pathetic pun about the pop group Bros. And that's the Ashkenazi pronunciation. <laughs> but, you know, it, that's actually made from the calf's foot. It's bone broth. Bone so broth is a really big deal. Yeah. I mean, mm. I never had it because it looked disgusting, but my parents ate it. But it was very good for you. The mm. same as liver. Yeah, but liver's delicious. <laughs> Anyway. I think there's the non-kosher equivalent is brawn. I watch a lot of cooking shows. So it's a right. pig's head that's um, boiled for a very, very long time. And it, it's gelatinous because of the cartilage and everything. And then they right. pick out every possible bit of meat from the pig's head and pour the broth over it. And the broth becomes a jelly, the same as like the Carsford jelly. And you have mm. it as a sort of terrine. Oh. I'm with Mark. Anything that moves when it shouldn't be moving, I can't deal with it. Also, I think if you've grown up eating Carl's foot jelly and then your parents are like on your birthday oh we'll, we'll have jelly for the party <laughs> and ice cream. I, I don't think you should call something that disgusting something that is so associated with I would you make a connection though yes i see i take your point but i'm not sure you'd make the connection with it i just love food but that is something just the look of it and the, the consistency of it uh, just made me feel if you're on everyone oh i'm a celebrity get me out of here or one of those oh, shows Rachel. Yeah, what about you, Rachel? What's your favourite Jewish well, food memory? 
I grew up in a deli and my parents had delicatessens right through, you know, probably until I was 17. That's like so, a dream. Well, not really because we lived upstairs of the deli and my mother used to make the chopped liver every weekend and the, oh, well, I can't think of the, oh my Google God. Simmons. My 15-year-old is obsessed with Kreplach at the moment. So whenever there's anything like he's had an exam or he's had a good day at school, bad day at school, that's we have to have Kreplach on that Friday night. Yes. So food was a big part of my life because it was there every day when I went to school and I came home and they talked about food and what kind. And my father was very passionate about food. I mean, when they first came to Australia, you know, there wasn't a lot of continental food. They came in the late 50s and you couldn't get like a rye bread you couldn't get all sorts of things it was only the Italians and the Jews that started bringing all that stuff so we had a delicatessen in Ackland Street St Kilda which was the known area where all the Jewish restaurants were there's an equivalent in London I'm sure but this was the only street and Jews would come from everywhere on a Sunday to our deli and my mother made the chopped liver and the kreplach and there was someone else that made gefilte fish and we never really had that stuff at home before but she had to make it for the shop. But I used to stand at the back of the shop behind all the salamis and the kebabs and everything, all the sausages hanging down, and I'd watch people when they came in. I think that's probably where I first got the idea of, you know, observing people because Jews are so emotional about food. They're so passionate. Either they love it or they don't love it or whatever. So on a Sunday morning, people would come from everywhere. My father would leave the shop door open and all these Jewish, mainly men, would stand around the front. You couldn't get past the door without going through this kind of tribe of Jewish men. And that all talk, they were smoking and drinking black coffee out on the street and talking about how much money they made and what they didn't make and they could have bought that building. My mother used to make the best sandwiches and we had bagels and you couldn't get bagels anywhere else. So they would come from all over Melbourne to get my mother's bagels. And then at some point, there was always the same thing that happened. There'd always be some guy that would ask my mother for his, and he'd, and he'd say, Mrs. Berger, you you know, you'll make me the sandwich. And my mother'd say, what do you want? You want cheese? You want pig? I don't care. You just put whatever you want because I know that you'll make me a good sandwich. Whatever you put in the sandwich, a bit of smoked salmon, cheese, the pickle, I don't care because you make a good sandwich. My mother would make a sandwich. My father would take it out. And there was a particular guy, I'm sorry, he would take this bagel and eat it and he would moan like it was like, oh, Mrs. Berger, I never had such a sandwich. I, from God's hands to my mouth. Every time some other guy would say, Mrs. Berger, make me the same sandwich. (laughs) Obsessed with food. Oi, what could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all of the usual platforms, as well as our own website, jewtalkintome.com. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe and leave us a lovely review. It's what your mother would want. Whether it's a lovingly made sandwich or a warming bowl of soup, we know how food can inspire others. Have you had your very own When Harry Met Sally moment? Or perhaps you've eaten something that made everyone around you jealous? Tell us what happened on social media at you talking without the G using the hashtag food envy. And now back to the show. 
the little old ladies would come in and the bread was always fresh that morning. They would pick up whatever the bread was and they'd squish it and mush it, whatever. Is the bread fresh, Mrs. Bergage? And of course it's fresh, Mrs. Goldstein. They'd put it back and take another one after they squished it and mangled it and whatever. What about the gefilte fish? You know, oh, I want to buy a bread, but I don't want to buy bread because my daughter-in-law, her name is Didri. Really, she's not Jewish. Didri. Didri doesn't eat bread. What kind of a woman doesn't eat bread? Mrs. Berger. Yeah, it was hilarious just hearing these people. You knew everything about their lives. And it was always associated around food. Yeah. So she talked about her daughter-in-law not liking bread as a way of saying, I don't like her. She's not Jewish. So my whole childhood was about food. The story about the old man enjoying the bagel oh. there, that seems to me the origin story of the line from When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> Molly, I'll, I'll have what she's having. They didn't have anything they wanted. But once they heard Mori Mori, they said, whatever Mori had, we want. Well, the, the sandwiches sound great. And the bit I'm really excited about is the fact that you said bagel and not bagel, which is a real broigus issue for us on this show and leads very nicely to let me ask you about whether there's any broiguses that you have in your lives that you wanted to share with us now. So, Mark, any skeletons in your closet? Could you rephrase that, please? Because as it happened, <laughs> um, we haven't seen my mother-in-law for some time and there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> I got this okayed by him because I know he's been on your show. My good friend Bennett Aaron and I had a, a, a quibble. He's another comic, Rachel, uh, from the UK. Actually, from Wales, so it doesn't really count. But, um, <laughs> there are Jews in Wales? I know. Now there's another Bruegus. There'll be a little bell, and then ding, ding! <laughs> he and I did a show together, and he created this character, this um, rabbi, like a rabbi, stand-up rabbi, that I performed the character. It was in a Jewish pantomime called Schminderella. Can I just say that I played the fairy godbubba in, in that? Oh, the fairy godbubba, I love it! She was a wonderful fairy godbubba. And uh, I took this character and performed, wrote my own material for it, but performed it at a couple of events without the okaying of Bennett. In fact, Bennett's line of story would be to the lawyers listening. Bennett said that he strictly gave me no permission. Anyway, I did this at a couple of shul events, did this character, went very well, mentioned to Bennett in passing, oh, this character went, what do you mean you did this character? That was the Bruegus. But the point of the story, which we both now laugh at and find very amusing, is neither of us, I think this is such a Jewish trait, were prepared to back down and say that we were in the wrong. This lasted for a year and a half of not speaking. We saw each other at gigs, we'd pass each other in the street, and just wouldn't speak. And then there was, I think we had a show together a few months ago, actually just before lockdown. And it was one of those, look, we need to get this thing sorted. But it was such a small, stupid thing that it should explode into a year and a half. We both agreed was ridiculous and shall not happen again until he steals my vicar character. <laughs> and that's interesting because, as you said, Bennett has been a guest on the show. And we asked him if he wanted to tell this story for his broadcast. And he said it hadn't been resolved. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I got it. it has, and everyone is very happy. It's a lovely story. Rachel, is there a Bruegus you'd like to share with us? This is not my Bruegus because I'm not good at Bruegus. I have to talk everything out. I, I couldn't do the not talking to someone for a year. It would drive me insane. Even if I had to slap them and force them to have a dialogue with me, I have to have it out. 
But my father only had one arm. He had an arm blown off during the Second World War. So he only had his right arm. But like all Holocaust survivors, there was no rehabilitation or nothing. So he sort of taught himself how to do everything, drive a car or whatever. So after a few years of being in Australia, he managed to cut the thumb off his right hand, which was the only hand he had left. I'm laughing because he was such an idiot and a klutz. But basically, he tried to change the tyre of a car. Very cleverly, he put bricks under each tyre, the three tyres that weren't flat and so it raised the car so the tire that was flat was then above the ground and he was going to change it with his one arm which he could have done but what happened was when he tried to lift the car up onto the three tires he had the only hand he had under the number plate and the car moved and fell and the number plate cut his thumb off you think that's bad i had to go look for the thumb rachel go find the thumb where's the thumb i mean you know why am I traumatized? So I went and found the thumb. Did they reattach it then? No, they didn't reattach it. There was nothing they could do with it. But we had an uncle, Uncle Ziggy, who was actually, he was my father's cousin. My uncle Ziggy was a doctor who was very handsome. He'd been in the 1956 Olympics. He'd been married 15 times. He was, he was this glamorous kind of godlike, Cary Grant type nostalgic character. And he was a doctor. We'd only been in Australia for like four or five years. So my mother rang him and he organised for an ambulance to take my father to the local hospital. What he didn't tell my father was that in my Uncle Ziggy's attempt to big note himself, he told the doctors that it was okay to perform microsurgery. My father's was one of the first microsurgeries they ever did. Now, what that meant in my father's case was that this is a man with half an arm left arm and now four and a half fingers. And they cut him open from the neck down to his belly button, shoved the thumb in there and then left it in there for six weeks so that it would grow back the flesh. <laughs> my uncle never told him. He just told the doctors to go ahead and do it. And then my father didn't know. They knocked him out. They thought they, they were going to do something. And he wakes up. What they did, it's like putting a plant in soil and it starts growing. The flesh just grew around it. So when they cut it out, he had like, it looked like a wristle had grown, but at least he had a thumb. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to hold things and do things. Sorry, I don't understand the bit where you said they cut him open and what did they do with the thumb? Put the thumb in there, stitched him up. In where? In his flesh. So his his hand was sewn into the wound in his belly? Yeah. Not into the stomach, just into the flesh, into into flesh. Yeah, because into the stomach would be disgusting, but into the flesh, that's perfectly (laughs) fine. And it actually worked because he cut off the top of the thumb, right? So what that meant was that if they could grow back something here, and actually the meat did grow back. So he had like a falafel on the end of his thumb. He never spoke to Uncle Ziggy again. Even when my father died, Ziggy didn't come to the funeral. That might be the most disgusting story that I've ever heard. Welcome to my childhood. I hope we'll be able to do a screenshot of all of our faces (laughs) while you were telling that story, because all of us were like white, gaping mouths. This was 1963 or 64. It was a very primitive microsurgery. But if you put flesh back into flesh, it grows back. I mean, you know, when like, we have the zombie apocalypse, this is going to be brilliant. Oh, wow. You know, your skin healed, a sore will close up. Yes. You know, I mean, my uncle did the right thing because otherwise my father wouldn't have had the thumb. The weirdest thing is that then years later, my father had a lung removed with lung cancer, right? My father lost bits of himself. I'm scared what you're going to say. So they sewed his lung into his ear. <laughs> He's in the post-operative room, just come out of surgery. He doesn't know whether they've removed the tumour in the lung or removed the whole lung. So the minute he wakes up, the nurse says to him, Mr. Burger, you're going to go home in one piece. We took out the lung. My father looks at her. He says, I'm going to go home in one piece. What are you, a comedian? (laughs) I think that says a lot about generations and how we've changed because I've got two arms, don't want to brag, 
but I won't change my own tire. I'll call someone to do it. He, with <laughs> one arm, was like, no, nope, I'll change that tire. Not a problem. I mean, that was a different generation. My mother and he were married before the war. And so the reason they survived was really mainly due to him being very brave and getting independent. He felt that he was less of a man unless he could do everything. And he was actually useless. He cut his thumb off with doing that. He nearly burnt the house down trying to burn a tree down. But my mother insisted that we all tell him that what he did was fine. It was like her form of rehab. So we all ended up having been injured. I can't tell you how many times I was electrocuted because he would say, just stick the screwdriver in the hole and he hadn't turned the electricity off. But my brother and I were both so profoundly damaged as children because my mother would say, no, no, your father's going to fix the chair with a drill. Are you seriously going to let him use a drill? Yeah, yeah, he'll be fine. And, you know, there'd be some terrible accident and that nobody ever said anything. We weren't allowed to. Just let him think he's done an okay job. He fixed a chair once, and the minute I sat in it broke, I fell on the floor. <laughs> well, Rachel, it sounds like your dad should be the star of his own documentary series. <laughs> but if we think about the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, who is your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Well, I don't have an actual Jewish connection as a person, but I have a really lovely Jewish connection in reference to what we were saying earlier about tribe. So when I started going to London to do stand-up, I would always go to Edinburgh, I'd do the Fringe, and then I'd work in London sometimes for two or three months. And I always stayed in a flat in Hampstead. And I didn't know when I first went there that it was owned by Jews. And in those days, I would fax them, I'd book it in, and the, the surname was Renshaw. I don't know whether you know anybody called Renshaw, but Renshaw didn't sound to me very Jewish at all. Then I found out they were Jews. They were quite religious. And it was always the same. I would get from the airport, I'd go to the flat. And this happened like, you know, three or four years in a row. The key would be in the letterbox and I would let myself in. And one particular time, the Jewish Chronicle had done a story, a full-page feature on me being an Australian Jewish comedian. And they must have read it. I know now they did. So I arrive late at Heathrow, I get the bus, I do whatever, a cab, I go to the apartment. It's raining, it's cold, it's horrible, it's a Friday night. I get the key, I let myself in. As I go in, there's two candles and a challah have been left on the table. It was the most beautiful thing. I just bawled my eyes out. Was that beautiful? Mm. They just two candles and a challah on the table. They must have then known I was Jewish from the article. And after that, there was always something, a challah or some cheesecake or something. I haven't even met them. I didn't meet them till the following year. That's what I was talking about, that tribal connection. You know, they just thought, it's Friday night, she's coming, it's going to be late, we'll leave with this. I was just imagining it, if it was in a movie, the torrential rain and you walking in there and this beautiful moment. If it was a, a comedy thing, I would imagine you taking the first bite of challah and there's banging on the wall, make the prayer, make the prayer. <laughs> <laughs> probably yes, probably yes. First we must pray. You're absolutely right. What a lovely image. They would never have known the impact that had. That's, to me, a Jewish connection. One year at the Edinburgh Fringe, I was hullishing for meat because, you know, I bring all my own pots and pans and everything. And I tend to sort of be vegetarian in the week because it's easier. And then on Shabbat, I go to different rabbis. I go to one lot for Friday night. I go one lot for lunch. And that's all very nice. That's when I get my proper food fix. But it got to Thursday and all that work and energy and emotional energy. A really lovely woman who I know in the community, just from going to synagogue there during the summer when I'm up, texted me to see how I was doing 
because I've sort of become quite friendly with her. And I said, oh, just like I'm desperate for a bit of meat. And she said, oh, meet me at this cafe and we'll have a cup of tea together. I thought that's nice. She's going to buy me a cup of tea. But in fact, what she did was bring me Vienna's and then she slipped them to me under the table. She said that something like the eagle has landed. So gorgeous. I can still taste them now, but that's Vienna's for you. I mean, I love that. What about you, Mark? And it doesn't have to be food related, but it can be. What's your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Well, actually, I had to do some research because I was really racking my brains and spoke to my parents. My my mum was born in what was then Palestine, then moved to America for a short while. My dad, uh, as I mentioned before, is German. But I had a great aunt who played for President Truman in the White House, played piano for him. Her uncle was uh, quite a famous pianist, Arthur Schnabel. He's quite a well-known. I know about Arthur Schnabel. Yes. So musical connection but I think that's quite a, a coup being playing for the president in um, yeah in the House is quite a nice do you know how that came about that you played for him no I think it was a, like a personal sort of invitation thing I guess when you're the president of America you have the ability to say Alexa play me Arthur Schnabel and he actually turns up on your doorstep <laughs> it was a whole swathe of, over that period of time of very sort of talented musicians particularly with piano which has passed down a couple of generations then obliquely stopped. Definitely didn't land on my shoulders. Not with these diseased hands. <laughs> One of the things that we like to ask is whether your Jewishness has impacted at all on your career. Rachel, how about you? I grew up listening to, my parents had an album called You Don't Have to Be Jewish. Did you ever Yeah, they've like, just re-released yeah. that here in the UK. Do you know what? I never even knew what a stand-up comedian was. I didn't even start doing comedy till I was 32. And yet I would pick up the needle and put it down on that album precisely at the point where people started laughing. I was more consumed with why did they laugh then and not a second before or a second after. Yes. But the topics... I also grew up listening to that. My parents weren't like massive comedy fans. Maybe my dad's a bit more than my mum, but my mum was kind of quite obsessed with that album. And we used to hear it mm. all the time growing up. The Plotnik Diamond and does that mean you're not coming? And all those stories, like they are part of the pattern of my childhood. All of us that grew up listening to it would remember those jokes. They were kind of leitmotifs in our lives. But what I really loved about them was that later on as I got older and I toured and did a lot of travelling and met Jewish comedians elsewhere was that that kind of language, that kind of um, Jewish Esperanto. Maybe a, a person that wasn't Jewish wouldn't actually get that and I've had that happen where yeah. they say, well, I don't get that. But we get it because it's a kind of a competitive, self-loathing kind of Jewish, always wanting better, and, you know, it's that. And, I mean, that's one of the best things about working with Jewish comedians all over the world, that you feel that connection based on something that it's just in your DNA. I love that. You know, if I have the choice of doing a show to a Jewish audience and I've written, you know, quite a lot of Jewish material yeah. or a non-Jewish audience, nothing to do with the religion. It's that exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I feel if I go in front of an entirely Jewish audience of a similar demographic to myself, I'm fine because the references they will all get as opposed to a mixture of audience. You're never quite 100% sure a third of them might like that joke, but with the Jewish audience, you feel if you if you can hit the nail on the head, you've got them all. Mm. I don't actually work Jewish, meaning I avoid all Jewish gigs, total Jewish, as much as I can because everybody knows everybody and they're very judgmental. Did she lose weight? Did she put on weight? How come she's still single? You know, like it's like that Jackie Mason thing. They're counting their heads and thinking, we paid $100 a ticket and they start counting your heads. How much money? he making and for me too it triggers stuff in me where I think why don't you shut up I'm on stage 
But then eventually after, I don't know, maybe 10 years, there's a club in Sydney called the Hakoa Club. It's like you have bars in England, but this is a Jewish club where people go, you can have a drink, you can have a meal, you're a member of a club, there's a pool, whatever, right? And they nagged me and nagged me and nagged me and nagged me until I said, okay, I will do it at the Hakoa Club, right? So the tickets were sold out. There were like six, 700 people. At that time, I was doing a lot of television, so they were packed out, right? So I'm feeling very insecure because I think I'm going to get on stage First of all, they're going to be looking at me. A lot of them I know because they were from Melbourne. So get this. You won't believe this. I didn't believe it. So I start talking, I'm joking, how Jewish men just, they don't know what to wear. Where's the butter? Why can't I find anything in the fridge? You know, all those cliche things, but they really, my back sore. No, what are you, you know, the nudging, the fridge, oh, how are you? Oh. They just make noises, right? And they can't make up their mind. They don't know anything. They don't say anything. They don't know where to what clothes to wear, am I cold, should I wear a jumper, you know, I'm talking about this, you know, it's packed and there's a guy at the end of the table right in front of me and he's getting all, you know, uncomfortable. Everybody else is laughing. He's going to, I said, listen, it's true. The Jewish men I know, they can't make their mind up. They don't know where to go, right or left, should I eat? Am I hungry? Am I cold? What should I do? Which way should I face the toilet? You know, people are like, he's going, I said, listen, clearly I've offended you. I want you to tell me what your name is. I said, I'm stopping the show until you tell me what your name is. I swear to God, he leans over and he hits his wife. He says, you tell her. <laughs> He's actually embodying everything I've said. He can't even tell me his name and he's furious anyway. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. It was so funny. Years later, people said, did you plant him? I said, no. The Jews are the only people, I think, who will question everything about the theatre. Where am I sitting? Is the aircon going to be on? Is it a restrictive view? My mother-in-law's favourite is, um, what's the leg room like? What are you talking about? How far away will I be from the toilet? That's a good question, though. I've had a few people ask, like, what's the running order? And I'm like, what difference is it going to make to you? You're going to be sitting in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> when am I on? You're on the whole way through, but your job is to do laughing and clapping. But the running order, you mean as in the order of performance? Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe because they don't want to turn up for everyone. They want to, maybe they want they're to. They're already there. They're asking me when they're already there. Well, that's nearly all we've got time for. But how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Normally, we allocate 20 seconds to do this, but for you, 30. So, Rachel, where can our audience find out more about you? Best way to find out more about me is to go to rachelberger.com. Everything's on there. That was cheap. 15 mm. seconds. Brilliant. Well, don't worry, Rachel. You can come back anytime for your remaining 15 seconds. <laughs> Mark, how about you? Uh, Mark Meyer dot or Mayer, but it's spelled the same way, either way pronounce it, M-A-I-E-R, markmayer.co.uk, or if you're interested in having your pet or family member drawn, I discovered a new lease of life, which is portrait work, which I'd love you to have a look at, which is Mark Mayer, M-A-I-E-R again, uh, with the word draws, D-R-A-W-S. That is my brand spanking new website, and touch wood, I've had quite a bit of work commissions of drawing people's pets. Well, I've absolutely loved this. And from now on, I'll always think of Rachel as the Jew whose dad found it difficult to hitch a ride and Mark as the Jew who'll happily give you a hand, but you might not want it. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo! <laughs>
as my grandfather used to say, I love seeing your smiling faces arrive and I'll love seeing your little tuchuses leave because sadly we've come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our guests, Rachel Berger and Mark Mayer. Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at Talking without the G. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share the show with everyone you know. And join us next time on Talking to Me. You Talking to Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Vulcan. Mark, you're very welcome to answer this yourself or to get your wife to, but what's the matter? <laughs> what's the matter, Bubbler? Well, it was quite a while ago. I saw Rachel in a show. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was sitting at the front. Uh, to be honest, I didn't particularly enjoy what she was doing. I'm sitting like this, and I mean... <laughs> Imagine if we hadn't heard Rachel's bit there, not just some, some bizarre rant that I'm on. <laughs> <laughs>